Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. What's going on, you guys? Welcome back to the Neighborhood Podcast. One of the hosts of the podcast. My name is Kyle Dabra. What's going on, everybody? Kevin Valentin here, the other half of the podcast. Kyle, man, what a Sunday. Yes, sir. It was an action-packed Sunday in the sports world. We had a great Game 2 between the Warriors and the Celtics. We had a great Game 3 between the Lightning and the Rangers in the NHL. We've also got like some big news coming out of Utah in regards to the Jazz with Quinn Snyder residing. Bro, we got to talk about these Angels. Angels have lost 10 straight games. They were 27-17 and 17 just like two and a half weeks ago, and they've completely fallen apart. So, bro, we got a lot of stuff to talk about, but you ready to dive into this? Oh, but of course. Well, typically I just outline the agenda from here on out, but since I already kind of threw out the topics, let's just dive straight into the first one. And that is the Warriors bouncing back in a pretty significant fashion in Game 2 against the Boston Celtics. Just to kind of give you guys a refresh of happened before game two uh boston won game one uh pretty decisively against golden state boston was down double digits in game one looked like golden state was really firing on all cylinders and then the celtics had a just an absolute dominating shooting performance in the fourth quarter in game one against golden state that got them that that 1-0 series lead but going to game two the warriors showed up and they put a beat down on the boston celtics beating them by the score of 107 to 88 once again, Steph Curry was on fire, almost had 30 points. Jordan Poole chipped in for 17, hit pretty much the game-clinching shot at the end of the third quarter with a dramatic 40-foot bomb at the end of the third quarter, beating the buzzer. It was just an amazing shot by Jordan Poole. It really just kind of encapsulated that major run that Golden State traditionally makes in the third quarter. They're one of the best third-quarter teams I've ever seen. And they proved it once again. And as it stands right now, the series is at 1-1 piece in the NBA Finals. The series will transition back to Boston for Game 3 within the next couple days. But let's talk about this Game 2. So, Kevin, to kick this one to you, just how impressive was Golden State in this Game 2 win over the Boston Celtics? I mean, I thought it was a great show of how they made adjustments. I thought it was a good uh, glimpse as to how Steve Kerr has this team rallied together, has this team focused and locked in. I mean, you know, they always have that 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 saying, you know, Dub Nation lock in on Twitter. You know, like Steph Curry tweets that before every game, and I, I really thought that that is kind of a kind of a big testament to what they did today just because they were able to focus on the defensive end. They forced 18 turnovers on the Boston side. And, and the biggest point, man, the supporting cast for Boston that dominated and kind of led the run in the fourth quarter in game one, uh, they were a no-show today. Marcus Smart only had, I believe, six points, if I'm not mistaken. And of course, now my fr- screen wants to freeze. No, he had two points. I'm giving him way too much credit. Marcus had two. Al Horford had two. Robert Williams had two. Jalen Brown shot inefficient from the field with 17. Jason Tatum goes for 28. But, I mean, 
honestly, outside of Tatum's 28 points, it was really, really a struggle for Boston to kind of get it going from the field today. I mean, as a team, they shot 37.5%. That is absolutely atrocious. It was just, it didn't look like the same team from game one. I don't know if they they made a deal with the basketball gods and said, you know what, Jason needs to go out there and get his buckets, screw everybody else, or what. But uh, no, it was it was absolutely incredible. The Warriors were just absolutely honed in on making sure that they held home court to at least some kind of uh, decency. Obviously, they lost the advantage giving up game one, but they didn't want to go, you know, down 0-2 heading back to, you know, Beantown. And I thought that Golden State did a very good job. Steph hit shots, obviously, you know, like Clay had a very, very, very bad night. And then you go and you look at the supporting cast of the Warriors and everybody kind of made some contributions. Uh, Wiggins had a little bit of an off night for 12. He had 11. Looney had 12. Uh, Clay Thompson had his 11 points. And then you look at the rest of the bench for the Warriors. Poole, like Kyle said, gives you 17. Gary Payton gives you 7. And, you know, you just kind of look at the team and say, overall, this was a solid performance. But, of course, it could be better. Um, Kyle and I have been talking about this pretty much all postseason, outside of maybe a, a couple of games. Clay Thompson's got to step it up, man. It, it it's it's getting to the point where he's putting up shots, just like Mike said a couple of weeks ago. <coughs> Excuse me. To where you look at it and you say, I don't think they need that shot, or that was kind of forced, or Clay, what the hell are you doing? And I understand that as Clay Thompson, you want to get into a rhythm, you want to shoot yourself out of a slump, you know, like they always say, shoot or shoot. But Clay Thompson needs to understand that sometimes the betterment of the team is you being that decoy running off of the screen. And like Draymond does so well, the fake handoff, that, that, that dribble drive penetration that he gets from the big switching to cover Clay or to double him to try to close out, Draymond's got a, a direct lane to the basket. And usually someone's got to step up and close the weak side. Someone's going to be open in the corner. And usually that help pass skips over and maybe the ball swings back to Clay. I don't know. But the point is, Clay's got to understand he cannot continue to shoot in the manner that he does throughout the integrity of this throughout the entirety of this series because it could end up hurting the Warriors because he didn't have the greatest game one either and now we're looking at going into enemy territory it's going to be tough for him to get into a rhythm there as well we all know game six clay is a thing but I mean if that's the only game you're going to pop off on in this entire series I would say that there's worry for Golden State but again like I said the biggest thing was that Golden State played solid defense they had their big third quarter and they limited the supporting cast to very minimal points and contributions on Boston's side. So I was telling Kyle as the game was going on, or kind of towards the game as it was ending, um, you know, give Jason Tatum his points. You know he's going to go after his 25 to 30. Let Jalen do what he's got to do. He's going to go after his 20 points a game also. But as long as you minimize everybody else's contributions, then I think that they'll be fine going forward. But overall, happy to see Golden State kind of get back into their rhythm. They look to gain some confidence, and we'll see how it is for game three. I mean, Kevin, I'm with you on this one 100%. I thought Golden State, they needed this one in a big way after giving up that game one loss, which I thought they were in pretty much in full control of, except for the fourth quarter where Boston just shot the lights out and Golden State couldn't respond. But I like the fact that Golden State, even though like this game was kind of back and forth in the first half, they made great halftime adjustments. And that third quarter is when this entire game just blew wide open for Golden State. So, you know, up until third quarter, really Boston and Golden State were in like this defensive battle. I mean, down low, it was just a battle between the bigs from Boston and the bigs from Golden State. Because Kevon Looney, once again, was solid for Golden State. But if you look at Boston, they were getting solid contributions from Daniel Tice and Robert Williams. They 
blocked multiple shots in game two. And that really kind of set the tone in the first half. Just both defenses with Boston and Golden State were just phenomenal. A lot of the shots early on were extremely contested and points were very hard to come by. So a lot of team, a lot of the game, it was mostly trying to drive into the paint, possibly get to the free throw line, maybe try to get a layup. But really, you look at the first half and you go to the third quarter. The third quarter is where everything completely flipped and it flipped in favor of Golden State. I mean, if you look at the box score, Golden State had a 35 to 14 quarter against Boston. I mean, you're talking about a 21 point differential in the third quarter alone. I mean, this is just Golden State's thing for some reason. They just make great halftime adjustments and they absolutely dominate that quarter. It just essentially make the fourth quarter relatively pedestrian. And I look at the third quarter specifically, Steph was special. Steph was getting great pick and rolls to the top of the key, was able to knock down a couple three-point shots. Jordan Poole at the end of the third quarter was just absolutely dynamite. Like I said earlier, him knocking down that 40-foot three-pointer at the end of the third quarter, I mean, it really just kind of clinched the game at that point. Golden State was up 20 points to begin with at that point, and that just extended the lead even more so. And you combine that with the fact that Boston just could not buy a bucket in the third quarter, no matter who it was from, that really just went to show the testament and really the championship pedigree that Golden State has been able to maintain for the last seven to eight years. It really kind of showed in this game too. And then really to kick it over to Boston, Boston just did not get the contributions from some of the role players like they did in game one. Al Horford was a beast in game one, was able to knock down shots very consistently. But in game two, dropped two points. We were talking about this a couple days ago. The one thing that Boston's going to have to get from him, specifically in reference to Al Horford, is he has to be more consistent. Because there are games where he'll drop 20, 25 points and look like a god out there sometimes. And then he'll have nights like this where he goes out and scores two points. You can't have that if you're Boston moving forward. He's at least going to drop 10 to 15 consistently. And then you look at the rest of the roster. I mean, I'm looking at... Derek White, granted, he he did knock down some pretty big shots early on for Boston, but only scored 12 points. Like Kevin said earlier, Marcus Smart with two points, Robert Williams with two points. I mean, these are difference makers for Boston. I mean, these guys are going to have to be extremely pivotal moving forward if Boston's going to win the NBA Finals this season. And with points performance like this, you're not going to be able to get that because Golden State made great defensive adjustments, and it really kind of showed because Marcus Smart... Al Horford and Robert Williams, the fact that they combined for six points between the three of them, that's atrocious. Granted, I know Jason went out and did his thing, but Jason had a minus 36 in his plus minus, which is the worst in his career at this point in the regular season and in the playoffs. So, you know, if you're looking at Boston right now, look, you stole one in, in Golden State on the road in game one. So it's 1-1. It's a pretty advantageous situation. For the Celtics moving forward, they do have the next two home games. Could they possibly win both of them? Yeah, potentially. But Golden State definitely got the momentum back on their side. So it's going to be pivotal for both teams uh, to try to either continue their play from game two, specifically in reference to Golden State. And then Boston just has to be able to knock down more shots consistently. But they have to get better production from Robert Williams, uh, Jalen Brown, Marcus Smart. Al Horford, like all these guys have to step up in a pretty big way if they're going to be successful back in Boston. But great performance 
from Golden State in Game 2. And with a series at 1-1 apiece, this is going to be a fun series, uh, the way that I see it. Both teams are great defensively. Golden State really showed that in Game 2. But we'll see what happens with Game 3, because Boston, I think, is going to find a way to bounce back, and we'll see if Golden State can counteract that. I think that uh, if there is a focal point for Golden State to focus on to improve, Steph needs his partner. Steph needs his yeah. his his splash brother, dude. It, like we said about Jason, he's not going to continue to have bad games. Steph is not going to continue to have these almost thirty point, if not thirty point games per per game in the series. Mm-hmm. We need somebody to step up, whether it's Poole or whether it is Clay. And I know that Poole had seventeen, but he did have about six to eight points in that fourth quarter to where Boston did not play their starters. So I'm not going to look too far deep into that seventeen because that was relatively close to being garbage time points. But again, he hit the important shots when needed. He played good minutes. So I, again, I give him his flowers. But the point of what I'm trying to say is, Steph cannot carry this team alone if Boston starts to hone in because others are going to have to make shots. Now, Steph is hitting the occasional step back three, the 30-footers that he normally hits, the, the, the floaters in the lane where he's finishing at the rim, and then, of course, he's getting to the free throw line a couple of times a game as well. Clay's getting 19 shots. I need you to be better than 30%. I need you to be better than 22%. You know what I'm saying? I, I need Clay. I'm not asking for game six Clay every day. I'm not asking for, for him to shoot 50% from the field. But my man, if you're going to take 19 shots, I'm really going to need you to step up and, and, and play a lot better because you also had a zero, like a flat on the plus minus scale. What are you doing to better this team? You're playing okay defense at best, and we understand you're still recovering from the Achilles and the knee. But again, I can't continue to use that as an excuse because you came back in January. So it's, you know, we're, we're in June. It's been six months. You're fully acclimated. You know, you've missed some. I don't even know. Has he missed any time since he's been back aside from maybe the occasional games for rest? Not really. Exactly. So it's like I, I can't sit here and say that they're limiting you and that they're keeping you off the floor. Granted, he played a shit ton more minutes than he needed to because Golden State, like I said, didn't need to play their starters in the fourth. And Clay played up until three and a half minutes left in the fourth. Kyle made the point while we were watching the game or while we were on the phone as the game was ending. You know, that's Steve Kerr trying to make sure that he kind of gets into some kind of rhythm going into game three. It made it worse. He didn't really make any shots outside of maybe like a a, a floater, if I'm not mistaken, maybe a step back jumper. But the point of what I'm getting at is Golden State needs help. And Boston's not going to have a bad shooting night like they did tonight, every single game. It's like we said just about Jason. There are going to be adjustments. Boston is going to find a way to bounce back. And they're home. Steph needs help. Well, you know, here's how I kind of look at it. Because I think Golden State's in a situation where you know, Clay is definitely, you know, not on point so far. And, you know, maybe it's just to a certain extent that he's just not all the way back from that Achilles and, and ACL, which is understandable. Like, you know, it takes a it takes a long time to be able to get back into rhythm after two significant injuries like that. So I, I understand, like, he's still cold right now. But they at least have Jordan Poole and Andrew Wiggins to fall back on. And I will say, yeah, Wiggins had a bad game too. Four twelve, he couldn't I, hit. He didn't get any shots either. Kev, you have to look into the, the contest. The first half, everybody was struggling. Everybody was. Yes, yeah. it was you a good only, defensive game, like you said. Like in the first half specifically, that really kind of set the tone for the entire game. Like just the defenses on both sides uh, for both teams was solid. I mean, Boston was getting blocks early on whenever uh, Golden State penetrated the paint. Freaking. Draymond Green was playing outstanding defense 
against Jalen Brown in certain possessions. Andrew Wiggins had great closeout defense. Like a lot of these shots that Boston's uh, were taking early on, they were heavily contested. I know Andrew Wiggins only had 11 points, but his defensive contributions is something that I can't overlook because he was playing solid closeout defense. And, and the thing is, is like points were definitely tough to come by. That's really going to be like the main thing that, that I look at from this game too specifically. It's just Golden State just blew them out in the third quarter. This game, to be quite honest with you, it kind of had like that old school, late 2000s vibe where, you know, you weren't seeing a team put up 40 points in a quarter. You were seeing teams maybe put up 25, maybe around 30 points if you were lucky. Because that was just kind of like the style of, of what was played back in like the late 2000s. The three-point shot hadn't really gotten to the point where it is now. But overall, I, I thought, you know, guys like Andrew Wiggins, Draymond Green in stretches, Jordan Poole, like Kavon Looney, like these guys I thought played very well for Golden State. Granted, like the, the point totals don't really indicate that because they're relatively pedestrian. But they knocked down timely shots when they needed it. Kevon Looney was able to get some decent rebounds at times to either save a possession, possibly get some second chance points. And I thought he was great on the defensive side. So, you know, when it comes to Golden State, I understand Clay is definitely a major factor moving forward, but they do have pieces to supplement him at times. You know, they have Andrew Wiggins. They have Jordan Poole. Uh, We'll see what happens with Gary Payton the second, because now they're reintegrating him back into the rotation after coming back from his elbow injury. So well, they, Andre they, Iguodala they, also didn't play, and he played in Game One. So that's also a big reason that you know GP two got his actual minutes back. Yeah. So you know, Golden State's in a situation where if one guy is not necessarily having the best night in, in Clay's perspective, they have guys that are behind him that can pick up the slack. That yeah. that's that's really one of the reasons why I picked Golden State in this situation over Boston was because I think they just have a deeper rotation to work with. Boston is kind of limited in that regard. But Boston can be able to make it work if they're just effective from the field. But, you know, before we, we go, like, to the next thing, I, I just got to ask you, this is just, like, something that, like, just kind of popped in my head. I mean, we're two games into the NBA Finals so far. Like, who do you have as the NBA Finals MVP leader right now? I mean, I would probably say Steph Curry. 32 in game one, 29 tonight, shooting efficiently from the field, leading this team, making good reads and great passes. I mean, I know he's not averaging a triple-double or anything, but he's rebounding the basketball like he normally does. He's finding wide-open players. He's getting himself into the you know the defensive side. He had three steals today also, so it's not like he's just doing it all on the offensive side. Now, if Al Horford would have had himself a decent game. You could have made the argument for him as well because of how he came on in that fourth quarter and led that Boston team to the upset in game one. And if he would have had, a, like I said, just a decent game today, maybe the score would have been closer. Maybe he would have been in the running as well. But to me, it's clear cut and, and, and it's concise for me because Jason had such a bad game one. Um, Jalen had a good fourth quarter of game one, but again, he kind of had an inconsistent first half. So the only player that's been consistent and scoring at a good clip and of, of efficiency on both sides, it's Steph Curry. Yeah, and it really is kind of cut and concise, like you said. Like it's to me, there's really no debate. I mean, as of right now, the guy's averaging around 32 points per game in the first two games, and he, I mean he's shooting relatively well. Granted, you know, I think he shot around like around like 40, 45 percent in game two. In yeah, game nine one, of twenty one. Yeah, in, in game one, he dropped 34 points. I mean, he was on fire early on in that game one where he just couldn't miss a three-point shot. He got into rhythm. Yeah, 
early I think he on. Had what twenty? He had twenty-one in the first quarter. He was cooking. It was somewhere around there. Disgusting. Yeah. So, I mean, to me, it's cl- it's cut and concise. I, you know, we'll see how the series plays out. Obviously, when you look at you know the boss perspective, I can't keep Al Horford in that situation right now based on the fact that he dropped two points again. Two, two points. Two exactly. points. No, like I can't have that. I mean, Jason. <laughs> it, yeah, like like ew ew. Like this is gross. I mean, if I had to pick somebody from Boston, it would probably be Jason just because he's producing. But in game one, he was he was inconsistent. He was inconsistent in game one. Really, Al Horford stole the show in game one for them. And Jalen Brown was it. Jalen Brown was able to knock down some timely shots in game one. And I mean, I'll tell you this. I mean, Jalen got off to a great start in game two. He dropped like 13 points early. Uh, against Golden State in Game Two, and then got into foul trouble, and then they they just couldn't get into rhythm, and that was just because Golden State clamped down defensively. But yeah, the only player that I could I could say honestly that's been playing the most consistent basketball in this series so far, it's Steph. And I know like that's our pick to you know win Finals MVP potentially. You know, granted he's off to a good start, but and we'll see what happens when it goes back to Boston. This is where it's going to get interesting. Cause, it's a whole different world out there in, in Boston, man. Yeah, and um, that Game 3, Boston's going to be hopping. They're going to be ready for Game 3. So, you know, obviously we'll, we'll talk about, you know, Game 3 at a later time. But you know, the series is just warming up. You know, I, I, I picked the Warriors in 7. I hope it goes 7 just because, you know, it'll be a more competitive game. But have, have you been, like, impressed by these these two final games so far, or they've been just like relatively like blowouts. No, I, but that's what I'm saying. Have like, they been exciting? Like, he, have they been exciting? Yes, because people have to understand it's not like previous series throughout this postseason where it's like it's a 30 point blowout in the third quarter. Nobody wants to watch the rest of it. You may claw back, you may not, but it's like this series in particular has been close pretty much until almost the very end. Obviously, game one went up into the fourth to where Boston went on a a run. It wasn't a blowout. Boston went on an absolute tear in the fourth. Golden State wasn't able to match it, and they turned the ball over. This game, Golden State had an an incredible third quarter like they've had for the last five years, five, six years. Boston wasn't able to catch up, and you know it turned into what it turned into. It's not, like I said, it's not like it's been just right off the gate, 25 points going into halftime. Like, no, these games have been competitive up until a certain point to where one team makes a run. And I think that basketball, shout out to AJ who's been on the show, he always says it. Basketball is a game of runs. It takes literally two or three shots to go in, and you're on a 6-0 and 8-0 run, and before you know it, that turns into something massive for the team with a confidence boost. And Golden State's at home? Come on. Yeah, I think even early in the third quarter, I remember... I think Golden State was up 12 points in the third quarter. Yeah. And I remember Boston knocked down two shots. They knocked down two three-point shots, excuse me, to got to to cut the lead to six points. And I'm thinking, I'm like, is this the run where Boston's going to not only, you know, cut the deficit to zero, but, like, actually take the lead? And then Golden State just absolutely annihilated them in the rest of the third quarter. I mean, Boston yeah, really I think I think Kerr, I think Kerr called the timeout right after Derek White hit that wide open three in the corner. I know it's exactly the one you're talking about. It, it, they didn't call a timeout. There was I remember I think it was Jason not down a three point shot. Steve Kerr got really pissed because he was basically saying like the the, the defense had to like kind of like step up to actually yeah. like contest a shot. They were playing too far back. 
yeah. then after that, they just went on a run where Boston just couldn't match it. Yeah. But I, but it, there was a moment in that third quarter specifically where I thought Boston cuts the lead to six points. Hey, bro, it's a two-possession game at that point. And the way that Boston was knocking down three-point shots in the third in the third and fourth quarter in game one, I could totally see a scenario where they would replicate that in game two. It's just Golden State oh, yeah. said, nah, like, nah, that's not happening. We're not going to let this happen two games in a row. You know, fool me once, shame on you. Fool, you know, fool me twice, shame on me. They weren't letting that shit happen again. So No shot. But, yeah, I mean, you know, I think I think we're in for a good series here. I really do. So we'll see what happens in game three that takes place in a couple of days. And um we'll um you know, we'll get back to this one uh later this week. Probably have another segment uh for, for an upload before uh game three takes place. Yeah, game game three's on Wednesday too, so it'll yeah. be a little conflicting. But Kyle and I will organize our schedule and make sure that we we prioritize it as we always do. Exactly. But uh with that said, we are gonna transition to some Pretty big news coming out of Utah with the Utah Jazz specifically. Uh, Quinn Snyder, the head coach for the Utah Jazz, has resigned from his position. Uh, Despite the fact that Quinn Snyder has been a solid coach for the Utah Jazz, has led the Jazz to multiple playoff appearances throughout his tenure, actually had the number one seed uh, in the Western Conference, not this past year, but the year before. He is out of a job with the Jazz. And... It really kind of focuses on Donovan Mitchell at this current moment in time. And there's been some reports circulating about how Donovan took the news of Quinn Snyder leaving uh, Utah. And I think if I remember the report correctly, he is unnerved by uh, the move of Quinn Snyder resigning from that head coaching position. And this is something that we've been talking about the last couple of days or so about some rumors of Donovan Mitchell potentially leaving Utah uh, to find greener pastures somewhere else in the NBA. So Kevin, I'll just kick this one to you with Quinn Snyder resigning from his head coaching position with the jazz. Where does this leave Donovan Mitchell in the near term future? Can you say rebuild? Because that's exactly what's going to happen. There was already problems this off season, right when they lost about Donovan, not being happy. Obviously Rudy made the statement of, you got to make the decision between me or Donovan. And now you're talking about your head coach, the coach that has made the playoffs six consecutive years, the coach that was a finalist to win coach of the year just last season, the coach that led you to the best record in the NBA last season. I mean, I, I really don't understand what, what, what more Snyder is supposed to do because he cannot get on the floor and, and make shots. Snyder cannot go out there and, and, and make buckets for, for players that are not executing. Kyle and I were literally talking about this before we started recording. He has a six-man-of-the-year in Jordan Clarkson, a superstar in Donovan Mitchell, a three-time defensive player of the year in Rudy Gobert. He has plenty of shot makers off the bench with Bogdanovich and, like I said, Clarkson. But, again, it's just a matter of, you know, people staying healthy. Mike Conley, since he got that massive extension, has not been available. Um, Rudy Gobert has been on and off with injuries. But, again, in the postseason, he's a liability because of his inability to make free throws and not being able to guard the perimeter. Um, it, it just there's a number of different things, and I think Snyder kind of saw blood in the water, and he was like, you know what, I'm out. I'm not gonna sit here and go through a rebuild. There are plenty of other opportunities that he feels maybe he can attain. Maybe he feels he can be better suited for another team. I don't know. I look at it and I say Utah was already kind of questionable this offseason with Donovan potentially wanting to leave. 
now that he loses his head coach, I think there's no stopping this rebuild. I think that there is an awkward situation right now in Utah, especially with three players owed uh, over $30 million each. Mike Conley's obviously owed his big contract. Donovan Mitchell signed his Supermax just two seasons ago. Um, and, of course, Rudy Gobert signed his Supermax contract about two years ago as well. Um, I mean, I think Donovan's due like $36 million. Rudy's due 41 If I'm not mistaken, Mike Conley's got to be upwards of 36 plus also at the age of, like, I think 34, 35. It, it, it's getting absolutely insane that three people are going to be owed just $100 million between the two of them, or between the three of them. And they have no cap. They have no luxury to go out there and sign other people. And I just think that, you know, all of these factors are just adding on to the speculation that Kyle and I already had. And I, I think that Utah's run has ended. And I think that, you know, Quinn Snyder kind of saw it. He he was able to read between the lines and say, you know what, we had a good run. I think I'm going to I think I'm going to step down. I think it was wise on his part. And now it's just a matter of where the pieces fall, man. Does Mike Conley get traded to offload that 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 big contract? Does Donovan Mitchell get sent to South Beach? Does Rudy Gobert go to Dallas? There is just so much spinning in Utah. And it's sad because, you know, what I'm saying like Quinn Snyder was a great coach. Donovan Mitchell is a great superstar. I thought that team was it had a lot of potential, especially last year when they secured the number one seed in the Western Conference and in the NBA. I really thought that they were poised to make a run. They just can't get it done, man. They can't get out of the second round. And um, I don't know where Quinn's going to go, but you know wherever he does go, they're going to get a great coach because this team was not as good as people would have assumed when he took over. And making it to six straight playoffs, I think that that speaks a lot of volume to the kind of character that Quinn had. And uh, you know, I know that Utah is going to be in a state of flux right now for the next couple of months. So we'll see where the dominoes fall. But yeah, no. It's unfortunate to see, but Kyle and I kind of saw this coming. Yeah, and I, the way that I see it, I think the front office was probably had already come to a conclusion about Quinn Snyder's status, and I think maybe Quinn Snyder just looked at the situation. It's like you know what, maybe it's better for for me to just bow out instead of the, you know the Jazz just going out and saying, yeah, we're, we're just going to straight out fire him. Um, it's unfortunate based on the fact that, like you said, the Jazz as a whole have had. You know, great success throughout the regular season to be able to make the playoffs six times in a row in the Western Conference is no easy feat. So the fact that they were able to accomplish that, you know, that's definitely that's definitely something that Quinn Snyder can look back fondly. But just the amount of playoff ineptitude that this team has had has been so striking. The fact that they can't even make the Western Conference Finals with the roster that they have assembled with Rudy Gobert, Donovan Mitchell. Jordan Clarkson, who's been six man of the year, I mean, Joe Ingles, Bogdanovich. I mean, they have a pretty group. Solid well, Joe group got of traded. Don't forget, Joe got traded to Portland when he well, tore his ACL. I understand, but Joe was a part of that that role oh, earlier. Yeah, like they had like solid pieces to work with. It's just that man, it's just they just can't get it together. And I I think the way that I see it right now, I'm not gonna go as far to say that Donovan's like for sure leaving, but now I'm kind of getting closer where it's almost like 50-50 for me. So the way that I see it with Donovan Mitchell specifically is I have to see how Utah handles their head coaching search from here on out. Obviously, when you lose somebody like Quinn Snyder, who has been a solid coach for Utah the last couple seasons, when he's out the door, you have to fill that vacancy with somebody that is going to entice Donovan or at least incentivize him to stay for the long-term future. Because if Utah falls short in that manner, then I'm probably going to get to the point where Donovan's out of there. Like Donovan's just going to be sick and tired that the front office can't get it together. And I think 
with everything just coalescing over the last couple of years, the fact that they've never made it to a Western Conference Finals, they had the number one seed last year, they, they couldn't get out of the second round. Like, this team has solid pieces to work with, yet they just can't find the, the plays to make when they need to make them. Guys just don't have the production that they need to at the moment in time that they need to step up. It's just, Utah just finds ways fall short, despite the fact that they have one of the most dynamic players in the NBA, like Donovan Mitchell. And I do think that if Utah screws up this head coaching search and they hire somebody that is just not somebody that can really propel this team moving forward, I think Donovan's going to be out of there. But that's worst case scenario. If the Utah Jazz, you know, hit a home run with the head, with a head coaching search, you know, that would definitely, I think, entice Donovan Mitchell to say to stay just to at least kind of play this out and see if Utah can, you know, make it to the second round and, you know, possibly try to get to the second round. Because when I look at this past season, you know, Utah was a solid team. I mean, they were middle of the pack in the Western Conference this year. It was obviously a step down from last year, but like Kevin said, like there were some injuries on this team. Mike Conley was in and out of the lineup consistently with his lingering injury issues. But getting bounced out of the first round, that's a very tough pill to swallow if you're Utah when you've just had multiple cases of just not getting to a Western Conference Finals when you have the requisite pieces to actually make that happen. And I think, you know, from here on out, you know, Utah's going to have to be, I think they're skating on ice here. Like, they're skating on real thin ice when it comes to Donovan's status. So I, I think all the pressure is on their front office to get this right with Quinn Snyder out of, out of the head coaching spot for Utah. But, you know, I'm getting close to like that 50-50 spot where Donovan could be out of there. That could potentially become 60-40, 70-30, 75-25, whatever the case, whatever sort of percentage you want to throw on it if they hire a suboptimal coach in Donovan's mind. So this is going to be very interesting to see how this plays out. If they screw this up, I think their championship window does come to an end because I think Donovan's going to be out of there. I think Rudy Gobert's going to be out of there. I think Jordan Clarkson's probably going to be out of there. Like he's going to try to facilitate a trade. I'm with Kevin on this one 100% that Utah might just blow it up if the head coaching situation isn't addressed in a proper manner. But if it is, if they hire somebody that's universally liked in the locker room, then I think that, you know, you, the waters will definitely be um, a little bit more settled. I don't think they'll be as troubled in, in that regard. So we'll kind of have to see how this plays out. But I will say, as of right now, you know, Donovan's status with Utah is in a precarious situation. It's not at a point where it's gone past the point of no return, but it's on the pro, it's really on the front office to get this one right. And there's a lot of pressure on them. And they really got to hit a home run with this next head coach they bring into the fold. Because if they don't, Donovan's out of there. I mean, I'm just looking at it from a perspective, right? If we're waiting on the potential hiring of another head coach, right? It's it's just started June. The finals end in about a week and a half, depending if it goes to seven. Yep. Free agency doesn't start till July. You don't know necessarily what Utah is going to do right off the bat because we don't know what's going to happen with free agency. So it's like, do you hire a head coach for a system that may get blown up in free agency if they can acquire another piece or if they trade somebody else? I think there's too many question marks right now because obviously the coach is the one that decides the kind of play sets. Obviously, we know Donovan Mitchell runs this team and he's the focal point of the team. But if they were to go with 
a D'Antoni, which I believe actually just got hired. Uh, oh my God, I I forget where I saw. Man, I think D'Antoni was just got hired somewhere, but I can't I remember where. I, I could I could look it up. I could look it up. But you know, th- like I said, the example is different coaches have different systems, and if that system doesn't feel like it's you know, if Donovan doesn't feel like the system's going to work for him, he's going to want out. You know what I'm saying? I don't think that they wait for a coach. I think that Donovan looks and kind of reads between the lines, like I said, and says. There's not a lot of coaches out there that I would trust to kind of lead. I mean, Quinn Snyder has basically let Donovan do whatever he needed to do, and the Jazz have been successful. Like, what other coach can you say is going to be able to say, here are the keys to the kingdom, and the, the system that I'm going to run for everybody else is going to be as efficient as they have had? Were you able to find it? Yeah. So he is currently a coaching advisor for the New Orleans Pelicans right now. But here's okay. the thing. I don't think that they should go after Dane Tony. No, 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 no. I'm, I'm not saying to go. I was using it as an example. Oh, like, okay. if they oh, were to, okay. like, we, we know that D'Antoni is a shooting offensive coach. I mean, for God's sakes, he literally shot himself out of a job in Houston just a few years ago. But I'm looking at available coaches. You're like, well, well Billy Donovan, uh, maybe Mike D'Antoni. Um, do they go after Mark Jackson despite his previous history in the league? You know what I'm saying? Like, who can you really go out there and sway to come out there and coach Utah? when Dan Snyder couldn't win with the roster that they had. Again, I'm a firm believer in situations like this of kind of putting your coach in the situation of making a decision of, well, do I get fired or do I walk away on my own will, of my own will? I can't blame a coach for people not hitting shots. Like, at the end of the day, Bogdanovich missed that shot in game six. That was a beautifully drawn-up play. Is that Snyder's fault? No. Is it Snyder's fault that his defensive player of the year was unable unable to play the majority of the second half and most of that series against the Mavs? No. That's why I get mad when people are so willing to say, X, you know, let's, let's fire the coach and start it over. Snyder's system worked. They were the best that they've been since the damn early 2000s with Darren Williams and Carlos Boozer. And now you have to start over with a brand new head coach. I don't know if Donovan's willing to take that gamble. I, I know sure as shit, Rudy Gobert is probably off this team no matter what happens now. Because you're, as a franchise, I'm not going to let go of the best player I've had since Darren Williams for a guy that's given me 13 and 13. I, I, I love what you do to protect the rim. I love what you do as a defensive player of the year. But if it is a matter of Donovan Mitchell and Rudy Gobert, we have said this a hundred times in the last two months. I am taking Donovan Mitchell. So now that there's a head coaching change, Rudy's going to be like, bro, I'm not dealing with this. You chose you chose Donovan already? Get me the fuck out of here. I, I think if Utah is smart, I think they try to go somebody who's younger. I think they try to go after somebody who is a little bit more vibrant in their coaching style. Um. It, just to kind of bring up the D'Antoni once as I looked him up, bro, he's 71 years old. Holy shit, is he really? He's 71 years old. I I don't think that that's the move. I, I, I think at that point, it's more of like a, I think it's like a generational bridge that's like too far to gap. Don't get me wrong, yeah. like D'Antoni's had success in the NBA. Like, I'm not going to criticize him on that aspect. I think it's just the relation to the players, I think is just like that gap is too big. I mean, 71 years old. I mean, do you do Billy then? That's up. Billy hasn't been successful. Potentially. That's what I'm saying. Like who, what, what young guys are available other than like assistant coaches right now, but but I mean, on the bench, but, but I mean, Billy's with Chicago. No, I thought Billy got let go. I thought Billy wasn't the head coach in Chicago anymore. I saw a post that I think that they had somebody else. No, he's still, he's still there. Bro, what the, I read something that was like, anyway, I, no, like I said, he, stupid. 
No, he's still there. He's still the okay. uh, the the coach of the Bulls. But um, no, it's you know trying to find these young guys right now when it comes to the coaching spot. I mean, it, it's tricky. I mean, you know, we're trying to like think like young as like NBA coaches or like you know somebody like in their forties. Like a lot of these guys that we're saying that they're young, or most of them are probably in their fifties. You know, Billy Donovan's yeah. like fifty seven. He's fifty seven. But it's hard to get a coach like a Steven Salas, a Jason Kidd. You know what I'm saying? Like those are those are younger coaches in the league that not everybody can say are as successful as they are. And excuse me, I have to take Salas away because Houston's been one of the worst teams in the league the last two years since he's been there. Yeah. So it, you know, like like you can't be like a Jason Kidd who has experience coaching two teams and being an assistant coach for a championship team in the Lakers. So it's like that's different. I, I mean, you know, when you look at the Lakers, they they went with Darvin Ham. He's 48, so he's relatively young. I mean, he's only removed. He's only been removed from his playing career in the NBA for. I mean, it's been it's been a while, but it's not like he's like been out of the league for like twenty five years. years. Yeah, it's not like that. He's been an assistant here and there. He was, I think, he was an assistant last for the Milwaukee Bucks, if I remember correctly. So yeah, last season, you know, overall, I mean, you know, the Lakers definitely went with a younger, more I guess like vibrant coach in in, in that sense, but. You know, when it comes to Utah, Utah's going to have to hone in on this head coaching search. And that's really, I think, I think to me, that's where things are going to get very interesting. Because if Utah yeah. screws up on the head coaching search, then I think Donovan's out of there. So I think that's going to be something that we're going to have to focus on pretty intently moving forward. Because I think Utah's like championship window, you know, is really at question here. If uh, they, they screw up the uh, the head coaching search, big time. But uh, with that said, we are going to transition into the NHL portion of the podcast. Uh, Kevin, I'm going to let you take this one. Well, um, Kyle and I talked about this last week, where the Eastern Conference Finals had started, and I made a bold prediction to say that the Rangers would lose in five or six. Uh, since then, the Rangers have won two out of the last three, and um, they just lost today for the first game in Tampa in Game 3 uh, to a beautiful pass. Can't even be upset. Uh, I mean, so specifically, Kyle, I'm just going to pose and ask this one to you. Um, is there trouble in Tampa Bay, and can the Rangers pull off a potential upset to go to the Stanley Cup? I mean, so far, they've been the better team. The Rangers have played absolutely phenomenal in this series. Now, granted... The Rangers did drop game three to the Lightning. And, you know, the Lightning definitely needed to get that win in game three because had they dropped that one, I mean, to be down 3-0 in the Eastern Conference Finals, I mean, essentially, it's a wrap. There's only been a couple teams in NHL history that have come back from a 3-0 deficit. And I don't know if the Lightning would be one of those, like, magical teams to be able to come back from a 3-0 deficit. It, the, the Rangers have been solid this series. Uh, in games one and two, uh, the biggest thing that I could point to with the Rangers has just been their overall pace. Their pace has been phenomenal. And they've really kind of, they've really punished Tampa in that regard because whenever Tampa makes a bad pass or turns the puck over, I mean, the entire team just hauls ass down the ice to try to get like an odd man advantage to get into good opportunity uh, positions to get some good shots at net. And they've really honed in on some of the weaknesses when it comes to Tampa's defense specifically. When you look at Vasilevsky, I mean, Vasilevsky is one of the best goaltenders, if not the best goaltender in the NHL. And he's looked relatively pedestrian in this series so far. 
against the Panthers, he gave up three goals in four games. In the three games against the Rangers so far, he's given up, if I remember the total right, he's given up 11 goals in three games. Now, granted, some of those were on him, but in large part, it's because the Rangers have been making good timely passes and they're getting great shots and they're executing on them. And I have to say, in game three specifically, the Rangers were up 2-0. They were up 2-0 in this game. And they were up 2-1 going into the third period. And had it worked in their favor, they would have been up 3-0 in this series. But they just got absolutely destroyed by Tampa in that third period in game three. You got to give Tampa a lot of credit for really showing some resolve in that third period because they could have just packed it in being down 2-1 and just you know gave that game to the Rangers. But they really showed that the championship pedigree that they've shown the last two years and winning back-to-back Stanley Cups in that third period, because I, I look at the, the goal that Steven Samkos got at the beginning of the third period. I mean, just an absolute rocket shot on the, uh, the top right-hand corner of the net. That tied the game at 2-2 piece. And then really, you know, Tampa kept up the pressure the entire third period. New York would get like a couple chances here and there, but really Tampa dominated that third period. And then the last 40 seconds of the game, the Lightning had a situation where they were controlling the puck on the Rangers' side. Forget who passed it to Kucherov. I believe it was Stamkos, but I might might be getting the player wrong, so don't quote me on that. Um, and then Kucherov had probably one of the best passes of the series so far. Just a nice little slip pass to Andre Pilat, who was trailing behind him, and he was able to just rip it home. I mean, I have to say this. The Rangers' goaltender was in position... And had he risen his pad like two or three inches higher, he probably saves that shot and that game is going to overtime. And then God only knows what's going to happen in overtime. Tampa could have won it. New York could have won it. You never really know. But Andre Pilat just absolutely ripped it home. And that was the difference maker that put the Lightning up 3-2 and really kind of saved them. Because when you look at the Lightning right now, the Lightning are a very precarious situation. They are missing Braden Point, which is a huge factor. He's been one of the top... Uh, playoff scores, not just for Tampa specifically, but throughout the entire NHL the last couple of years. And I really do think that Tampa is missing his presence. It really just seems like Tampa, their chemistry is just off this series. They're giving up turnovers in bad positions. They're giving the Rangers way too much space to work with. Granted, I'm not going to blame this on the absence of Braden Point alone. There's been a lot of miscues from Victor Hedman, Nikita Kucherov, some of the role players on different lines. Tampa's really struggled in this series so far, and it's really because I think they've had a difficult time dealing with the Rangers just absolutely pressing the entire game. And the Rangers could do that because the Rangers are a relatively young team. But I think Tampa Tampa is finally getting up to speed. Those first two games, I think they were really hindered by the fact that they, they were off for over a week and a half, or at least a week and a half. I think it was nine days, if I remember correctly. And I think they're finally kind of getting up to speed. It just took two and a half games to finally get to this point. So I'm not going to say that, you know, that the lightning are, you know, they're, they're done. They're completely out of it. I mean, they, they fought in game three. They, I mean, they needed that one to, to get back into the series, but going into game four, I think both these teams, both the Rangers and the lightning are looking at the situation where if New York wins game four, they're going back home to the garden up three, one, 
that could potentially be a death nail situation for the Lightning. And then if you look at the Lightning, the Lightning have a very good opportunity to tie this series up at two apiece. And if they're able to do that, going back to game five in the Garden, you don't know what could happen. But, you know, when it comes down to it, Tampa showed up in game three when they needed to. They fought back. They showed that championship pedigree that they've had the last two seasons. But when I look at this game four, this game four is going to be absolutely pivotal for both teams. It's a great opportunity for both of them. And uh, I'll definitely be looking forward to it uh, pretty intently. I'm looking at this and I'm saying, like Kyle said, first two periods, New York dominated. You look at the third period, you give up two goals, one of them in the last minute, and you say, holy shit. This is the motivation that Tampa needed. Holy shit. This is the moment that you do not give a veteran team. You do not give the the back-to-back defending champions at home on their ice. And um, that might settle or, you know, that might not sit well with this young New York team because this is all a a veteran team like Tampa needs. Like Kyle said, they've had a cup. They almost had two weeks off. They may be settling into that groove there. They literally ended the last period with a win. Going into the next game, this could lead to be a massive issue that New York might not be able to handle. Now, I understand that Kyle said that the the change of pace has been something that Tampa's been struggling to get with, but now that the Lightning have their, their, their feet or their skates underneath them, this may be a series to where it starts to go, okay, you guys want to play fast? Might not be our style, but if we have to do this to show you guys that we mean business, to where we can regulate the game, regulate the game to our pace, keep the puck on our side. I mean, I I watched, I caught the third period, which is of course the worst period to catch because I was out and about for the majority of the day, so I didn't really have an opportunity or chance to watch the the first two periods. And I looked at the shots on goal. Tampa almost doubled the amount of shots on goal on New York. So it's not that the time of possession isn't something that is the issue here. It's a matter of New York capitalizing and making some tough shots. Now, if you can look at this and say, okay, if we can keep the pressure, New York will eventually fold. If we can limit the amount of time that New York has the puck, which they already have less time of possession in the last two games, and minimize the amount of makes that they have on goal— we can actually come back in this series relatively easily. And I'm not saying that New York, I'm not, I'm not trying to be negative here. I'm not saying that New York can't win this series. But again, with a veteran team like Tampa, they just need to get a sliver of hope. Just a, just a little bit of, oh, oh we could do this. And it's, it, it's championship teams, man. We've seen them do it time and time again. I'm not saying that New York can't, can't close the coffin. I'm not saying that this series is going to go seven. It's just a matter of I would have liked to see a little bit more fight in that third period from New York, a little less sloppy play. There were a couple of loose turnovers there in the last couple of minutes of the third period that I looked at it and say, oh, like that wasn't necessary. And again, since I'm not a hockey fan or a person that watches it as rigorously as as maybe a Kyle or, or a couple of my other friends that I know watch the playoffs as intently as they do. Um, I, again, I, I'm trying to just make sure that I'm, I'm paying attention and not trying to put too much thought into it, but I thought that there were some opportunities I thought New York let slip away and uh, a couple of un, untimely turnovers that, that gave Tampa a couple of shots on goal that put them in a situation to uh, to take the lead late in the, four, in the, in the third period. So um, I think it's going to be a good rest of the series. Curious to see how game four goes. And, you know, again, with this being legitimately the stage before the Stanley Cup, the way that it's going out there in the Western Conference, I truly believe that whoever comes out of the East is going to be hoisting up the Stanley Cup because I think that the teams left 
are poised for adversity, and I think that they are kind of just ready to go on all cylinders, both on the defensive and the offensive end. And um, I think it's going to be an interesting closeout to this fi- this conference finals. Yeah, and to be quite honest with you, to kind of focus on a point that you made with that third period, the, the, the third period reference, I, I've watched all three of these games so far between the Lightning and the Rangers. The third period by the Lightning, that was the first period I actually thought that they won. Like, as far as, like, if you were, like, to compare the performances of both teams each period, I think the Rangers have dominated the first three games by a wide margin. I mean, you're talking about the Rangers, like, winning eight out of the nine periods within the first three games of the series. I mean, in that scenario, you would think that the Rangers would be up 3-0 in this situation. But the fact of the matter is, is that in that third period, I mean, to give up two goals when you're up two to one going into the third period, that's brutal. And the thing is, what the Rangers have done effectively to this point is all the shot attempts that light, the Lightning are getting, they're getting either blocked, goaltenders in the perfect spot to be able to make the save, and just the overall press that the Rangers are putting on the Lightning. It's putting them in a, in a bind, and the Lightning are turning the puck over, and the Rangers are getting great situations to score. And really, the, the one point that I wanted to mention about the Rangers when we really look at this game three, I mean, if Barclay Goodrow had just got that one shot off, with I, I think it was in the second period, the Lightning were on a power play, the Rangers get a steal, they get an odd man advantage, Goodrow gets a shot, and it hits the post. If Goodrow hits that shot just a little bit more to the left, it's a goal. I mean, at that point, you're up one nothing. At that point, you combine that with the fact that the Rangers had two power play goals in the second period, that could have potentially put them up 3 nothing. A 3-0 deficit is a lot more difficult than coming back from 2-0, especially when the other team's on their home ice. You know, to me, I think the Lightning really made a, a great... Uh, play to get back into it. It was a power play goal by Kucherov that got that deficit to two to one. And then, like you said, just Tampa was just hellacious in that third period by by getting just constant pressure the entire period. They were tying it up in the third with just a rocket shot. And then Palat just nailed it home at the end of the game. Because I remember I was I was watching the game with my brother, and the one thing that we were saying kind of back and forth to each other was, man. Tampa's getting good looks here, but they're just not capitalizing. I'm like, yeah, this this game might be going to OT, bro. But I, I got to give the Lightning credit. They showed up and they made some great plays when they needed to uh, to be able to survive a game three because that's the best way that I could describe it. They, they, they did kind of survive game three because New York was like this close to possibly winning that game. And the fact that the Rangers were like this close to winning game three, it really kind of indicates how good they're actually been playing, like how hot they've been. They've been playing phenomenal hockey. And, man, if it goes south of the Rangers here, they're going to look back at this game. It's like, we, bro, we had this one. 100%. Like, like, that's something that, you know, obviously we have to see how that series plays out. The Rangers could go out in game four and absolutely dominate the Lightning. And then going back home for game five could potentially be over for the Lightning. But this one's going to sting if you're, a, if you're a Rangers fan because this is a game that could have had. Being up 2-1 on the road in the third period, that's 
that's an advantageous situation. It's, it's, it's a tough one. It's a tough one to come back from, 100%. And again, I'm not a massive hockey fan, but knowing and checking on the score religiously, seeing that it was 2-0, and then seeing that you know that third period kind of fall apart, you were looking at it like, oh, shit, here they come. And yep. that's exactly what happened. And again, dude, I'm watching this game, and I text Kyle immediately. I said, bro, I can't even be mad. Was that a- was a flawless pass to go dude, up 3-2. Dude, dude, the little slip pass... The catch Pilat, like it was mm. like it was like poetry in motion, bro. It was it was a perfect setup. And it was bro, just, smooth it was, hockey like that is what makes me like, man, maybe I could get into hockey because that was like so like like I said, smooth, bro. Oh. And, and the thing is, I remember I was talking about this with my brother. On that play, uh the Rangers player that was uh basically covering Kucherov before he pe- made that pass back, his name was Abanajad. Bro. Zabanajad was like literally like like going in a circle like bro he was lost like bro you got to give him a map because like you had no idea where the puck was and I mean Kucherov like he's subtle with those passes like he he's either hit or miss with some of these passes because sometimes he'll he'll make just terrible passes that lead to turnovers and good scoring opportunities for the other team but then you get passes like that where it's a perfect slip pass to a lot who's literally in rhythm to take the shot and i gotta give i gotta give a lot of credit to um the goaltender for the uh, for the rangers um leave his name is uh Chersteken, i think if i'm getting his name right his name is igor it's pronunciation it's just Chesterkin. it's Chesterkin. that's that's the guy's name um he was in position he was in position it hit his pad I mean, that's how, like, close you're threading the needle on some of these shots, dude. Like, it was that close. He had 48 saves. I mean, the Lightning had 51 shot attempts. Nuts, bro. That is not okay. 48 saves. I mean, the Lightning really kind of gave it to the Rangers on shot attempts. And the fact that the Rangers lost this game by one goal with 40 seconds to go, you know, it, it depends on how you look at it. You could look at it from the Rangers like, yeah, you know, drop that one, but it's like, we, like we could get this back, or it's like, yeah. damn, we let that one slip. But it's like, are are we gonna let that like continue? Like, are we like gonna be like bothered by that moving forward? We'll we'll kind of see how it goes. But I think the Lightning have finally kind of caught up to the Rangers' pace. I think it finally, you know, it got to this point where they they could actually, you know, go toe to toe with them. But. If the Lightning win game four, momentum series, shift completely. The, the series flips entirely. But if the Rangers win game four, it's over. It's over. I'm not going to say it's over because we've seen the Rangers themselves have been the ones to come from two, three, one deficits. I will not. Dude, hockey's that well, one. It, it, sport. Was, it, was, it was one. I will, it was one, three, one. Two. No, it was two. two. It was one. It was two. One. Dude, we were down 3 1 against the Penguins. You were. You were not 3 1 down against the. Uh, Against the Hurricanes, you were down two. It was uh two one. You look I up. because dude, I I saw this. It says we're the second team, we're the fourth team in NHL history to come back from two three one deficits in a postseason. You want me to look it up? Yeah, look it up, uh, bro. Okay. I literally All saw right. the statistic. Game one. This is the Carolina series. Carolina was up one zero. They went up two zero, and then you guys won bad to bad games in the Garden. So what was that statistic I saw with the fourth team? Maybe we were the fourth team to come back from a, a one, a two, one. I don't know. 
I, there, I've been having there, an off night tonight. I don't remember shit anymore. It, it, there was a stat that, that came out, I think, a couple like weeks ago, saying that the Rangers were the first team to come back from a 3-1 deficit, and they were down like multiple goals. I think like that was like I, one. Of the, maybe I, that's the one. Yeah, I, th- I think that was the one stat that they that they used. But some of these stats get so crazy, bro. Like they like you they get like so like intricate, like so detailed. Yeah. you get to kind of like really like dive into it. I'm like, the fact of the matter is the Rangers won the series against the Hurricanes. Yeah, it doesn't really matter. And Man, you know, I, guys, I'm getting old. I'm forgetting shit. I used to be so on point yeah, back in the day, bro, bro. They came back from a two zero deficit. I mean, you got to give them credit on that. So. The Rangers weren't really even like supposed to get this far. This was kind of a team in a rebuild anyway. So the fact that they've gotten this yeah. far is really a testament to their character. And the fact that these young guys are playing so well, so good, that's going to bode well for them in the long term. So I think, the, I, I think the Rangers are going to be here for a while, bro. So don't sleep on this team moving forward. But game four, game four is about to get. It's going it's, it's to be a good one. Yeah, that one takes place on Tuesday. So Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday at eight. So that'll definitely be a fun one. And then uh, Game Five takes place on Thursday back in the Garden. So I get fun, bro. So we'll see how it goes down. So with that said, we're gonna transition to our last segment of the episode. Talk a little bit of baseball, and we're gonna we're going to specifically focus. I know it's it's getting late because I'm struggling to say words at this point. Gonna be uh, fine. We're going to talk a little bit about the we're going to talk a little bit about the Angels. So the Angels have been in a really tough stretch of late. So just to kind of put things into perspective, just a couple of weeks ago, the Angels were 27 and 17. And when you look at what the Angels have done recently, they have lost a tremendous amount of games the last two and a half weeks. They have been 11 swept. straight. They've been swept in three straight series. And they have, like Kevin said, lost 11 straight games. This is an atrocious stretch that the Angels have been on. And granted, it is June, so it is still relatively early in the baseball season and in the MLB. But Kevin, I got to kick this one to you. Do you think the Angels are in legitimate trouble in this 11-game losing streak that they've been having? I don't think it's a good sign for the amount of money that they've spent in the last couple of years. I mean, Trout's been hurt. You obviously have your, you know, Otani, uh, you know, pulling in basically two jobs as a pitcher, and obviously, you know, MVP season that he had last year um, at the plate. You know, you have Rendon that you made that trade for. Should I say, you you signed in free agency from the Nationals after they won the World Series two years ago. You go and you sign Noah Syndergaard this offseason to kind of solidify that that number two pitcher behind Otani. John Madden, no, rest in peace. Uh, Joe Madden at the uh, at the at the managerial spot. You kind of try to bring some championship pedigree in, in terms of leadership in the dugout, and it's just not boding well. Mike Trout's not hitting very well. The pitching staff is just not playing very well. I mean, you look at the scores of the last eleven games. I'm going to read from today's game all the way to their last victory. So against the Phillies, nine seven loss. Phillies again because it's a three game series, seven to two. Phillies again, 10-0. The Yankees, they played a three-game series. Supposed to be four, but one game was postponed. Um, They lost. This was the closest game in this entire losing streak. 2-1. They only allowed two runs. They lose to the Yankees 6-1, 9-1. Then they play the Blue Jays. They gave up 11 runs. Granted, it was 11-10, but again, that's still 11 runs. It's not a good showing from their pitching staff. 
They lose 6-5. They lose 4-3, 6-3, There was only one game in this 11-game stretch where they did not score more than two runs, and that was that game against the Yankees. How are you supposed to win games when your pitching staff's ERA is absolutely atrocious? What are you supposed to do when you're giving up more than four runs per game every single game during the streak? Your best player is in an absolute slump, if I've ever heard of one. And you're going and you're looking at this and you're saying, dude, we're not just losing. We're not scoring. Outside of today's Phillies game, like I said, they scored two runs, zero, one, one, one. (laughs) Your pitching staff sucks and you're not hitting consistently. It's not a successful formula. And like Kyle said, it's June. I'm not going to go out here and say that they're not going to make the playoffs. I'm not saying that they're not going to win the World Series. We've seen teams turn around drastically in the months of August and September. So I'm just looking at this and I'm saying it's not a good look. Um, it's definitely not something that you want when your team is finally healthy, especially when you get your best player, arguably the best player in baseball and Mike Trout back. And I don't know, man. It's I don't know what's going on in LA in LA for them to fall this fast and this hard. But if they don't get their act together, they're going to quickly fall behind in a very competitive uh, American league. And I think that they need to kind of get this together and write this write this wrong because you can't just put all this pressure on Mike Trout. You signed Anthony Rendon. You have plenty of other players on this roster that are going to be able to kind of contribute. And again, I'm not asking for a 275 batting average, 20 home runs, and 80 RBIs from every single individual. But again, when you pay the money that you have for the players that they have on this team, you would expect a better result and a better record this po- this point in June. I know I say a lot about the Yankees, but we have found a way to do what we need to do and have the best record in baseball up to this point. And this is the difference between the two teams because at the point that Kyle was talking about when we were talking about baseball, the Yankees and Angels were tied for the best record. It literally has gone in an opposite direction to where the Angels have plummeted in the American League and the Yankees have absolutely ascended to great feats. So you can tell that just two, three weeks in the MLB can mean an absolute difference of an of a incredible season and a, oh shit, here we go again kind of season. So I say that the Angels got to get their act together or this is going to be one of those seasons where you look at everybody and say, do we blow this up? Because this shit is not working. I mean, Kev, when I look specifically at their pitching staff, their pitching staff has been absolutely atrocious. I mean, like you said, you know, to be giving up on average like five to six runs per game, you can't have that. You know, granted, if you're, like, if you're only giving up like two to three and the bats aren't there, that's one thing. Then you just kind of specifically focus on the hitting. But yeah, when your pitching staff is struggling this bad, winning games is just tough. I mean, it's not easy. You know, you granted, I mean, they have great hitters like Mike Trout and Otani. But when they're not producing... It just makes that that make it makes it that much more difficult to be able to go out there and win baseball games. I mean, Kev, just to kind of focus on Mike Trot specifically, Trot hasn't gotten a hit since May 29th. That was over a week ago. So at that time, his last hit, he had a three he had a three hit game against the Blue Jays on May 28th. His batting average was 320 at the time. That batting average has now dipped to 274. So he's almost lost a half point in his batting average in just a week. He has been struggling that bad. He's struck, he struck out, if I get this correct, he has struck out like 
eight or nine times in like the last like six or seven games that they've lost. And, you know, this is my trap. This is one of the best players. It's not the best player in baseball. And he's struggling this bad. It just kind of goes to show like where the angels are right now. I mean, for God's sakes, they were 27 and 17, like just two weeks ago. They were basically at the top of the AL West. And one of the most, I would say one of the more exciting teams in the AL this season. But to see them just completely fall apart in this stretch that they've been on, it's been absolutely horrendous. Now, I will say this. It's June. This is not a situation where they're going on this 11-game skid at the end of August going into September when they really need to ramp it up to try to make the playoffs. So this is a situation where I think the Angels can bounce back from. First of all, their pitching staff needs to get it together. They need to start dropping that ERA closer to three if they're going to have any chance to win any sort of games in a competitive fashion moving forward. And the bats got to show up. Mike Trout's got to be better. Otani's got to be better. There's a boatload of reasons why the Angels have been struggling. But by and large, it's it's the pitching primarily. The, the pitching has to be improved because there have been some games where the bats have been there. The Angels have scored multiple runs. Like, they they put up over 10 runs in some of these games, or they at least put up 10 runs or close to it. But when you get swept in three straight series, that's horrendous. You know, that might be something like you see from like the Reds. That might be something that you see from the Royals, not from the Angels. So it's bad right now. I'm not going to say like, this is like the season's over. They got to blow this thing up and they got to start from scratch. No, 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 no. It's still early. They can recover from this. We'll see what happens. They they got to find a spark from somewhere because right now they're in a very precarious situation. I mean, be under 500 when they were over 500 by at least 10 games or so, not too long ago. That's very self-defeating. So hopefully they find some sort of stretch where they can win some easy games, kind of get back on track and kind of forget about the last two weeks because the last two weeks have been just utterly atrocious. But we'll see. It's still relatively early. Not gonna say this the season's over for them. They have plenty of time to make this up. But yeah, this was a this is a pretty bad stretch for them. Hopefully they can get it back together. Yeah, we still got a long ways to go with baseball, man. It's absolutely insane to think that there's 162 games in a season and we're sitting here talking about the NBA with 82 and then potentially lessening the season. We're talking about football with now 17 games. It's it's crazy to know that this damn sport legitimately lasts like eight months of the year. It's it's a it's, it's a it's a marathon, bro. It's a marathon. It's great. So, I mean, baseball's gonna be you know basically front and center. You know, once the NBA Finals and the NHL playoffs come to an end, so I know the Stanley Cup's gonna basically end around the middle to end of June. The NBA Finals will wrap up within the next week or so. So, you know, baseball's you know. Hey, we're we're heading into the dog days of summer at this point, so baseball's gonna be front and center before um before a training camp for the NFL starts ramping up at the end of July. So, but um, uh, I know you gotta be happy with with how the Yankees are playing right now. I, I know we don't have a segment for them, but uh, they've been on an absolute tear, bro. Yeah, I think we're on another six game win streak right now. Um, Boston's playing like shit, so that's phenomenal. But, you know, again, it's June. I'll get excited when we get closer to end of July, beginning of August, when it's actually meaningful baseball because, you know, obviously this season goes well into October. So, uh, 
Yeah, no, I mean, Aaron Judge is on the tear. Obviously, you know, our pitching staff is absolutely just killing it, dicing it up. I believe Nestor is 5-1, and one, Cole is 5-1, and one, Sevy is, I think, 4-2. and two. Like, it's just, we're, we're doing everything that we can, and it's, uh, it's really nice to watch us be as successful as we are with the roster that we have currently assimilated, assimilated and uh, I can't really complain. Again, I am just happy to see us be consistent. At, the, at best. Uh, I'm excited to say that Kyle and I are going to be at a game uh, within two weeks from now. So to see my boys live for the first time in three years is going to be quite the feat. And it'll be against the Rays, so a division rival nonetheless. So uh, maybe we'll go live from Tampa. Maybe we'll go live from Tropicana. I wish we could. I wish that was actually possible. But, you know, we'll see. Wouldn't, what that, wouldn't that be fun? Getting all, all of our shit down there. That'd be fun. Just sit there and just plop the damn phone and just like put like a divider in between us with just like headsets and just a random microphone. Yeah, I mean it'll be a good game. I mean, I mean the Rays are, I mean they're sitting at, at a thirty-one and twenty-three record. You know, granted it's still early. I mean, like that's a respectable record. Agreed. So, but just bro, I mean the Yankees are thirty-nine and fifteen. They have the best record in baseball by I think like three and a half games. I, I, I know you're still very. I don't want to say pessimistic about like the rest of the season but you, you're definitely tempered in your uh approach when it comes to the the yankees so far but i know that you're like over the moon about the start that they've had just specifically yes. about the about the start that they've had did you even yes. expect that this was gonna happen or was this no like we a talked bl- about this we talked about this i thought it was gonna be a middle of the pack team i thought it was literally gonna be like third or fourth place in the american league east i mean let alone freaking best record in the sport like no Yankee fan in the world saw this coming. And if you did, you're lying. Because the roster that we have, with the money that we're paying out to certain players, it's not... It, it, again, it's an, unsu- it's an unprecedented run right now that I cannot simply put into words. I've said it a thousand times. I'm happy with where we are. I don't want to settle. I don't want to get comfortable. But we talked about this last season. Dude, Boston went on the same run. At some point in the year, and I think it was closer to the beginning and then to the All-Star break, and then they carried through. And then the Yankees went on a run at the end of the year to flip and fight for first place. Granted, we ended up losing to Boston in the first round of the playoffs. But what I'm saying is there's always a team that starts off red, red, red hot. They go into the All-Star break. They kind of go back and forth and not necessarily a slump. But they kind of go kind of like win, loss, win, win, loss, loss. And then they kind of hit a slump in the most important portions of the season. So as good as an, as good and important as a fast start is, like we have right now, I'm not going to put all my eggs in one basket and say that this is going to lead us to a World Series because we have to win baseball games at the most important parts of the year. And like I said, that's going to be late July, throughout the month of August. And of course, the most important games are going to be closing the season out in September. Well, when was the last time that you see the Yankees on a run like this, though? Like, where, like, I think they're, like, what, like, 32 and, like, 9 or 32 and 7 in, like, their last, like, 40-some games? Yeah, I, I don't necessarily know within a certain stretch. I can't remember and put to mind the last time we've actually won a chunk of games like this. But again, last year we went on, like, a 12-game, a 13-game win streak to close out the year or, like, you know, to, like, close the gap with Boston leading by, I think, 12 and a half games at one point. And, you know, we did what we needed to do at important times. But in terms of, like, in a time frame of wins, I can't remember the last time we've been this successful in quite some time, if not ever, at and least in all, my lifetime. And with all the pieces that they acquired, you know, either through 
you know, the off-season additions that they had or some of the in-season acquisitions that they had. It's all worked out so far. Which I know you were kind of skeptical you were kind of skeptical about uh, maybe the Josh Donaldson signing. I know that Still the, am. He's I, inconsistent. I, I know the Gallo one is one that just kind of just absolutely pisses you off even though he he did hit a moonshot. He hit a bomb today. Yeah, so that was an absolute rocket shot to uh to right field. So so it'll be interesting to see what happens with Duhar. He requested a trade. He requested a trade today. But hey, we picked up Matt Carpenter off waivers, and he's actually been doing incredible in this six-game stretch at home. I think he has like two or three home runs in six games. It's kind of nuts. Yeah, he had a bomb shot against the Tigers in that game where they won like 13 to nothing, where everybody was getting nuts. a home run. Nuts. Judges off to an MVP start. Like, guy has 21, 21 home runs. Home runs. Stanton's coming back off the uh Stanton's coming back off the IL. So we'll see what happens and see if Big G can get in a, a rhythm again. I call yeah. him Falafel because I can never remember his damn name. He's playing actually pretty solid baseball. And then, you know, the catcher that we acquired from the twins is actually playing solid. I dude, I names this season have just they've eluded me. And I see them on the highlight and I know who they are. I know their numbers, but it's like, dude, right now, I don't give a shit who you are. We are playing that good. <laughs> we have a rotation of just players that are stepping up with injuries or whatever, and we're doing what we need to do. And as good as the bats have been, the pitching's been there. Pitching's been even better. I mean, the, the last like, couple starts, I mean, the guys have been just absolutely phenomenal. Like, Locking started, it down, bro. I mean, like, you know, granted, I mean, they were playing against the, uh, the Tigers in, in that home stretch, but I mean, Cole was dealing. Uh, Cortez was Tayon. dealing. Oh, Tayon is six and one. Also six and one. Yeah, I think he's six and one. I think for the first time in Yankees history, there were back to back perfect games going longer than six innings for the yeah. first time since like nineteen forty something. It was Cole and Tayon, right? Cole, Cole and Tayon. Yep. Cole had one going through seven up into the eighth. Yeah, was up it, until the eighth, eighth. he had se- yeah he had seven perfect innings and then it, it got blown oh, up in the okay. eighth, and then I think Taeyong got his blown up in the seventh. And then Severino had a, had a masterpiece the other day. I think he only gave yeah, up like one seven, earned. Yeah, one earned in seven innings with ten Ks. Right. Dealing, bro. And Nestor's out here just doing something I would have never expected him to do, but I'm not complaining. Montgomery, Monty's playing solid. You know, not crazy, but solid. Bro, bro, once they start breaking out the bucket hats and the chains, you know they're feeling themselves, right? Oh, well, yeah. I mean, again, I, I, I'm not being pessimistic or negative for the team's success. It's just because, like, we just alluded, you, you, 162 like, games, dude, you know like, a slump is coming. Gonna a, there's going to be a tail off. There will be. Yeah, and but that's e- fine. E- e- even if they were to win, like, 60% of their games, 65% of their games from here on out, I mean, that's still a, sex, that's still a success story that you could roll. I want, us to, I want us to win 100 games. I mean that's that to me that's 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 the minimum of a, of a successful season. You know, granted, winning the division could be considered successful. Ninety-five game, but I want I want to be greedy. I want I want six. I want three digits. I want three-digit wins. You know, granted, I mean, we'll see how the season you know unfolds. There's still a lot of time left. I'm looking at the standings right now. You guys are seven and a half up against the Blue Jays and eight up against the Rays. I'll throw the Red Sox in for good measure. You guys are up twelve against them. So don't even worry about the Orioles. The Orioles are seventeen back. I'm not worried about them, but for whatever reason, sometimes we struggle against them out of left field. So I, I, I'll never know what it is. They are like the worst team in the league, if not one of the worst teams in the league. And for whatever reason, they always give us a run for their money. I don't, I don't get it. Hey, sometimes you slack off. Sometimes you get beat. It happens. 
It's like the Patriots and the Dolphins, like for the last twenty years, they were like that one team that the, just you're like, bro, the Dolphins really. You know Dolphin, what I'm saying? But the Dolphins know them. The Dolphins play them twice a year, so it, like it happens. Yeah, you know? no divisional divisional opponents are always tough ones. I get that. It just makes you laugh when you look at it and you say, "Well, the Patriots went thirteen and three this year, and two of those losses came from the Miami Dolphins, who are picking third in the NFL draft." <laughs> like you're like, bro, what the fuck? Yeah, like I remembered. Um, oh God, like remember this is a terrible example to bring up. I hate to bring up your team in this example. Remember when the Jags were playing the Patriots at the end of the season, this past season. The Jags and they blew like, up like, by like yeah forty like, something. It, yeah, it was like fifty to like sixteen. Like we were absolutely cooking against the Jags. Then I think the Jags played you guys the next week. Yeah, right after. Yep, and we lost by I think twenty or some shit like that. I don't even remember. It doesn't even matter. I just like uh, that's how it goes though. Like divisional opponents, just they get they, prepared, they, bro. They they know you best. You, you play each other twice a year, so it happens. So it doesn't surprise me that the Orioles beat the Yankees every now and then. No, so, but you know, you need a bad game here and again to remind you, like, okay, like it's a, they're not good and we are losing. It's a good reset. Yeah. Especially especially when you lose to an inferior team. It, it kind of gets Heat you check. back it, it gets you back into place. Hundred percent. But with that said, bro, I think uh I think we knocked everything out. I think we're good to go. Yeah, I think it's about time to go to bed. Yeah. I feel that, bro. But um uh, no, I'm just once again just you know, just to kind of wrap this up. Uh, thank you guys for tuning in, whether you guys were watching us on YouTube or listening to us on the audio platforms like uh, Spotify or Apple Podcasts. Definitely appreciate you tuning in. Um, just to kind of give you guys an outlook for the rest of the week, uh, we'll try to record a segment for game three of the NBA Finals. We'll try to give a preview and a prediction for that game. Uh, we may do something with the Lightning and the Rangers. Just not sure. We'll, see, we'll try to see if we can work that out. But we'll just kind of have to make that with the schedules. Um, we'll upload another episode at the end of the week, like we typically do. And um, yeah, that's pretty much all that I got from here. Just, you know, once again, thank you guys for tuning in. And uh, Kevin, I'll let you take this one out from here. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, as always, we appreciate the support. Wouldn't be here without you guys. Like Kyle said, just because of scheduling, we'll figure out what we're doing between segments and episodes. I mean, you know, TikTok's been doing great. Twitter's been doing great. Kind of like just growing exponentially on uh, on both sides, relatively simple. So uh, I'll take what we can get. And obviously, you know, we appreciate what we can get when we get it and where we do, no matter where the support comes from. But again, without you guys, we wouldn't be able to do this. So, um, you know, with the postseason being here in two sports and obviously a big championship coming up and then one one being currently active we have plenty of content to talk about but like Kyle said expect a, a little bit of a dip off in terms of content we're going to be fishing with some MLB stuff NBA free agency um and just just a whole bunch of stuff coming up that we're going to try to make sure that we just focus on a little bit more even if we put out a little bit more on some shorter segments maybe some shorter episodes but again we're going to make sure we do what we can to just keep you guys entertained and just make sure that we're giving you guys the best content we can moving forward so uh, without further ado, you guys have an incredible start to your week, and we'll be seeing you guys soon. Yep. See you guys later. Electric Welcome to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing, where we harmonize your mind, body, and soul. I'm Amanda, your sound therapy expert. And I'm Stephen, the curious explorer uncovering the mysteries of sound. 
Together we explore vibrations, frequencies and the power of sound therapy and tuning forks. Discover ancient wisdom, reduce stress and tune into a healthier life. Subscribe to Tuning Into Sound Wellbeing today. Introducing the Deep Leadership Podcast. Leadership is a people business. That's the philosophy of your podcast host, John Rennie. As a former submarine officer who spent 22 years leading businesses in corporate America before starting his own manufacturing business, he knows that leadership matters. Leadership matters. Deep Leadership is real-world, actionable leadership advice from John and his expert guests. Become a leader worth following. Subscribe today. Electric acid. Electric acid.